Hey there, welcome to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Aulani Santiago, here to administer your daily dose of death. So I'm really sorry about the brief hiatus. As y'all know, Halloween is around the corner and that means my job gets really busy since Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Orlando is easily the biggest Halloween event on the East Coast. So if you're in Central Florida during September and October, you should definitely come check out all the cool costumes I made for this year. Um, And for all the non-Floridian listeners, I hope you're all having a really good start to your spooky season. This week's story was recommended to me by one of my lovely friends and my co-workers, who's also one of my work moms, and her name is Jackie. I consulted with her while writing this episode because she happens to be pretty close to the subject matter we're discussing today, which has to do with the army. Jackie's not only super duper intelligent, but she's a veteran as well. Her rank in the military was sergeant, and she was a non-commissioned officer who entered as private first class. She saved lives as an army medic and was deployed with the 10th Combat Support Hospital. Her time in Iraq was from 2008 to 2009, but she served a little over eight years in total. I hope I said that all right. I'm still learning about all of the army-specific terminology. Um, But before we dive in, I do want to give a trigger warning for sexual assault and the mention of suicide. The National Sexual Assault Hotline is 1-800-656-4673 and the suicide hotline is 988. Although there aren't any readily available pictures of the autopsy performed in this case, I was able to take some pictures from the documentary called The Silent Truth, which is where I got a lot of my information for this episode. I'll be posting them on Instagram at storiesftmortuary. That way you can all better visualize what we'll be talking about today. As always, I'll post links to all of my sources for this episode in the show notes, and I've also included two links to petitions that you guys can sign to reopen the case that we'll be discussing today. Unfortunately, the missing indigenous woman I'm going to tell you about today doesn't have a lot of available information on her case, so I do apologize about that, but her family could still really use your help. Stephanie Gina Brown was born on May 14, 1988, and would be about 34 years old today. Stephanie's family last had contact with her in 2009, but she didn't go missing until six years later. She was arrested in Farmington, New Mexico on December 12, 2015, and then released, given a date to appear in court, but she missed her court date and has never been heard from again. Stephanie was struggling with substance abuse at the time of her disappearance. She's 4'11", 137 pounds, and has brown hair and brown eyes. She's also enrolled in the Arapaho tribe of the Wind River Reservation. If you have any information on her whereabouts, please contact the Farmington Police Department at 505-599-1070. When we return from the break, we'll begin this week's story from the mortuary. Are you equal parts cute and spooky? Do you like horror movies and celebrate Halloween year-round? Visit wearecrimsonclover.com for all of your spooky needs. They have home decor, kitchenware, and clothing that will suit all of your ghostly needs. I just ordered a Faces of Death shirt and I'm very excited to wear it to work. Use code Miss underscore memento underscore mori with two eyes. That is M-S underscore M-E-M-E-N-T-O underscore M-O-R-I-I for 10% off of your total purchase at checkout. On July 19th, 2005, at 7.30 a.m., the doorbell rang. Linda Johnson pulled back the curtain to peer out the window and told her husband, Dr. John Johnson, that there was a soldier on the porch. She asked him what it meant. 
John knew then that it wasn't good news. He told her that it means something happened to Lavina, their 19-year-old daughter. Upon the door opening, the soldier asked, Are you Mr. John Johnson, father of Lavina L. Johnson? John said, Yes, I am. The soldier stepped inside the house and asked if Mrs. Johnson was home. Linda heard the soldier ask about her, and she asked what he wanted. The soldier asked, Are you Linda Johnson, mother of Private Lavina Lynn Johnson? She replied, Yes, I am. What do you want? The soldier stated, We regretfully inform you that your daughter, Private Lavina Lynn Johnson, is dead. Linda felt like she was in a nightmare, and she begged the Lord to wake her up. The soldier stood there in the entryway of the Johnson house with a stoic countenance. This was an unfortunate announcement he had made to many families, and the Johnsons wouldn't be his last. The soldier informed them that her death appeared to be due to a self-inflicted gunshot wound. John gathered himself just enough to ask if the soldier was saying that his daughter purposefully killed herself. The soldier, a bit defensive, said that no, that was not what he had said. In fact, her death was currently being investigated. The next day, the casualty liaison stopped by the Johnson house. Their job is to make all the funeral arrangements, the equivalent of a funeral director in the civilian world. They have the same training and certifications, but with additional training and military procedures. Unsure of how to approach the delicate subject, the liaison suggested a closed casket funeral. Linda and John hadn't seen their daughter's body yet, as they had to go to the airport to pick her up. On the way to pick up Lavina, Linda fondly recounted the last time she had picked up her daughter from the airport. She and John were so excited that Lavina was on leave. As soon as Linda spotted her daughter, she ran to meet her and hugged her tightly. But now, as they headed to the airport, Linda realized there would be no warm embrace, just the cold reality of death. Rather than Lavina's bright smile, Linda saw a casket draped with an American flag. July 27th was Lavina's 20th birthday. There wasn't a birthday cake or balloons or candles to blow out. Instead, Linda was at the funeral home viewing her baby girl's lifeless body. Lavina's sister Lakeisha came up to view the body with her parents. She was horrified and screamed at the soldiers, what did you do to my sister? During Lavina's senior year of high school, she pulled her dad to the side to have a candid conversation. She asked him if he had enough money to send both her and Lakeisha to school. He said that he did. Then she asked if he would have enough money to send her to school out of state in California. Though he was surprised by the question, John told Lavina that if he had to work until she and Lakeisha finished school, that he would do that. That was when she told her dad that she was thinking of going into the army. John said absolutely not, but she told her dad that she'd already made up her mind. John and Linda had deliberately set money aside to pay for all of their children's college tuition. Joining the army wasn't something Lavina had to do. She wanted to do it. While viewing Lavina's corpse at the funeral, John recalled how Lavina was just like the other Carter ladies in the family. Carter was Linda's maiden name, and what she and her daughter shared was their stubbornness. He knew from the day Lavina said she wanted to join the army that there was no stopping her. Lavina was a tenacious young woman. On July 27, 1985, a very special little girl was born, and that was Lavina Lynn Johnson. She was the fourth child born into the closely knit Johnson family, but the first of two girls. She was a good, quiet baby that was very friendly and seemed to enjoy her family time. She spent most of her playing time listening to and playing with her three older brothers and father. 
Other than family time, her next favorite pastime was swaying in her swing while she watched television before taking her afternoon nap. The thing her parents remember was how she swung so much she wore out her swing. As a four-month-old baby, she received her first honors when she was named Baby of the Year at Walnut Park Church, where the Johnson family worshipped. When she was four years old, she started to sing in the church choir. When there were holiday programs at church, such as Christmas and Easter, she would practice her part every night until she memorized every word. It was because of this dedication that she shined as one of the most prepared students by making her program speeches without mistakes. At an early age, she started to display responsibility by insisting that the entire family get up early enough on Sunday to attend Sunday school. Every Sunday morning, she rose early, then made sure that every family member was up with plenty of time to get ready and attend church early. She immediately showed her leadership by taking the role of big sister very seriously. Every time the family went out together, she volunteered to take charge of her baby sister, who was two years her junior, by leading her by the hand wherever they went. When she was five years old, she attended Keevan Elementary School. The moment she started school, she displayed signs of being an excellent student. The first time she made the honor roll was in first grade, and continued to do so every year at Keevan. When she was in the fourth grade, she started practicing the violin. She practiced every night because she always wanted to excel at everything she did. By the time she reached the eighth grade, she had played in several school concerts. Her science project also won honors all the way to the state level, and she started to run track. She didn't join to compete, she just liked to stay healthy. She took an active part in a number of school activities and hosted after-school clubs. At home, her interest in holiday spirit continued well into her adulthood. Immediately after the Thanksgiving holiday, she insisted to her father that he, she and her sister, put up and decorate the Christmas tree, while her mother made out the gift tags. She and her sister would then decorate the entire house to include the fireplace, the stairwell, and their rooms. On the mornings of her parents' wedding anniversaries, Christmas and Thanksgiving, she and her sister would cook breakfast for their parents and set a festive table to include napkins, hot chocolate, and candles. Once her sister had learned to play the flute, it became a family tradition for the two of them to serenade their parents with an appropriate song as they ate. To further show her willingness and love she had for her family, she started another family tradition by getting up early every Saturday morning to cook a huge breakfast for the entire Johnson family, including her aunt. Lavina seemed to have a love for everything and everyone she came in contact with. When she was in the fifth grade, she seemed to enjoy taking a role in political issues. Since she loved animals and didn't like hearing about them being killed, she heard of and joined People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or PETA. She became a dues-paying member at the age of 11 years old. To further her commitment to the cause, she also became a member of Vegetarian Economy and Green Agriculture, or VEGA, which advocates alternative means of meat other than farm animals. To support the cause, she became a vegetarian and stayed that way all of her young life. From there, she attended Hazelwood Junior High School. During her two years, she was involved in a number of school activities. They included receiving the DARE Certificate of Achievement Award, Student Volunteer Group Award, and she was a member of the Student Citizenship Club, which earned her certificate recognition from Congressman William Lacey Clay. There she also obtained the reputation of being a dependable student, which got her a number of praise in the form of certificates from most of her teachers. By that time, she had learned to play the violin really well and participated in a number of school junior high concerts. She was well liked by students and teachers and was on the honor roll both years there. 
By the time Lavina attended high school, she had a good reputation among students of being friendly and having only good things to say about everyone she knew. People knew her knew she came from a real close family because all of her siblings attended the same high school. She was always seen attending high school sporting events with her father and all the other school activities with her mother, father, and younger sister. She had also matured to the point of knowing what she wanted to do with her life. She wanted to attend college and prepared herself by being on the honor roll the entire time she was in high school. She also set three major goals for her life. One, she wanted to attend college and major in performing arts in order to become a movie producer. Her father had written several fiction novels and her goal was to one day see to it that his books were made into movies. She even talked about being behind the camera when that happened. Two, her oldest brother John had written over 30 songs. Her brother Jermaine is attempting to form a music company. She and her younger sister Lakeisha had talked about them graduating from college, then forming a family music and movie company to showcase the talents of their family to the entire world. And three, Lavina was a pure patriot and sincerely wanted to make a difference in the world, so she started by participating in a number of community activities. She was recognized for being involved in a number of community service projects, including feeding the hungry during a number of church holiday Feed the Needy programs, attending runs and walks for cancer research, collecting canned goods for the homeless and the Boy Scouts, contributing to the environment by recycling paper and plastics, donating clothing and money to the less privileged, and donating blood to the Red Cross. In May of 2004, she graduated from Hazelwood Senior High School as an honor roll student, with only two Bs in her senior year. In September, instead of enrolling in college, she enlisted in the U.S. Army. She attended basic training at Fort Jackson in South Carolina for eight weeks. Her parents were told by her drill sergeants they could tell she was raised in a disciplined home because she was very mentally strong. She was often used as a role model to both female and male soldiers. In May of 2005, Lavina was assigned to the 129th Corps Support Battalion and deployed to a service tour in Balad, Iraq. John and Linda remembered that one year, Lavina gave them a hand-decorated Christmas list. It read, Lavina's Christmas List, with the first letter in each word traced over in gold. It was adorned with stars she had drawn in purple marker, a bright orange and green candy cane, a Christmas stocking with a tree on it, and a Christmas tree decorated with lights and a star on top. That year, Lavina asked for Jada Pinkett Smith's new CD or a $15 gift card from Kmart or Target if they didn't have it, and a movie trivia game. What else could a little girl in the 90s want? But since 2005, Christmas hasn't been the same for the Johnsons. They haven't put up a tree since Lavina died. It was her favorite time of the year. She was the one who always decorated the tree in the house, and she loved shopping for gifts for her family. When Lavina decorated the house, she would put up five stockings for her and her four siblings. But there were only four Johnson children now, and the house remained undecorated. In her first few months with the army, Lavina wrote a letter. It read, Dear parents, first off, let me start by saying sorry if my letter isn't too great. I don't have a lot of experience in this area. I'll just start off with the first week. I was so nervous when we got off the bus. The drill sergeant started giving us a countdown, telling us we had 30 seconds to get our asses off the bus, and he didn't stop cursing. They made us line up with our eyes forward, mouths closed, and bodies still. I tried to remain calm because I had already mentally prepared myself for our rude welcome and it just got worse from there. It didn't matter where we were standing, in rocks or concrete, we still had to drop and do push-ups. 
they would make us hold the positions for a really long time. And they would say up, and then wait a while, and then say down. Some girls were already starting to burst into tears, but I knew that was nothing to what was ahead of us. And mom, I know you'll be acting all emotional and teary-eyed when you get this, but cheer up. It shouldn't be too long before I get to use the phone again. Love, Lavina. Lavina's letters were like a lifeline to her parents. It was how they knew she was okay, and if that wasn't enough, there were the frequent calls. On May 20th of 2005, she wrote her parents another letter. Dear family, I guess I'll start off by telling you about my trip. Some trips seemed longer than others. We stopped in Baltimore first, then we made our long trip to Germany. The plane ride was okay. They gave everybody pillows and blankets. I'm pretty sure we were in first class. Lavina drew a little smiley face over first class. The letter continued. It was so great, but it was a really long flight and I couldn't sleep much. And when we finally landed in Iraq, we were all talking about how we still didn't feel like we were outside of the United States. They have a PX store, an internet center, a pizza inn, a subway, and a Burger King. I just see it as a way for them to make a profit off us and make us spend all our money. But I'm only spending my money on the necessary things. I'm learning a lot of new things though. Last night, a couple of people taught me how to play spades. Now, I'm not saying I'm an expert or anything, but I was slowly getting it. Well, that's all really to tell for now, but I'll try to call in the next couple days. Ta-ta for now, Lavina. P.S. It is really hot here, but the nights are so beautiful. After settling into her new base in Iraq, Lavina sent another letter to her parents. It read, To my parents. I got the letter in the package yesterday. Thanks so much. I've pretty much settled in, and Dad, it's funny that you call me Trooper since I've been called that a few times since processing. The first thing they called us was female warriors and then just females. And now it's mainly soul because we're half soldiers. And you should see the PX. It's amazing. But they give you the list of all these things you have to buy, and then they give you a card with only $300 on it. I don't know why I bothered to pack a bag because I had to throw almost everything away. Now, I don't want to be a burden, but I wanted to ask if you could send me a few things. I need soap because they don't give it to you here. Can you believe it? And I need a key lock because mine got stuck and they had to cut it off. And if you could send me my PIN number to the credit union because I can't get any cash, and I gave my last $5 to a collection for a guy whose wife just had a baby. Tell everyone I said hi, and I hope that Lakeisha has learned how to load the dishwasher and doesn't flood the kitchen anymore. That's it for now. Love, Lavina. Soon after, another letter. To my parents. We had to go through three long, hot days of training. Most of the time we had to wear these very uncomfortable bulletproof vests and helmets. I'm surprised nobody passed out even though we all felt like it most of the time. We had to get up at three o'clock in the morning and we never had any time to eat before we had to start running around. But we all lost our appetite because it was so hot. The tents we stayed in were okay, but a few people had to sleep on the floor because they didn't remember to bring their own cot. But that's what I did. Then I was so mad at myself for not having a camera when we rode by a couple of herds of camels. I didn't even know camels came in different colors. After the three days were up, I had a lot of minor injuries. I had a couple of burns on my face because when someone is shooting next to you, the empty bullets hit you and they're so hot they burn your skin. Then I ended up banging my leg because the last day me and this other guy were the unlucky ones who had to ride in the back of a five-ton truck in the hot sun. 
All day we had to keep climbing up and down and the heavy vest didn't make it any easier. But in the long run, I guess it wasn't that bad. Love you, Lavina. One of her final letters, written on May 27th, talked about being able to go to church while in the army, something she did regularly as a civilian. Dear family, last week I went to my first military church service. I was talking about church with this one female sergeant and she told me there was a service going on tonight that I should go to, but I didn't want to go alone, so of course I wasn't going to go at all. It's funny, when I think that only at this service will you see a bunch of different uniforms and guns. The service was nice and people were really friendly. First there was a small group singing, then they welcomed the visitors, and everyone greeted you with handshakes and hugs, and then the preacher started his sermon. It didn't last long, but I'm glad I went. Three days ago I spotted this black scorpion that was in our tent. Then yesterday I spotted another scorpion, and a bunch of us got our cameras out to take pictures. Well, other than that, there's not much more to tell. And happy birthday, Dad! Try to relax on the day that your presence is celebrated, even though you should be celebrated every day. Love, Lavina. John was supposed to have heard from the medical examiner as soon as the autopsy was complete, but he was still waiting for answers even as he sat feet away from her body at the funeral. According to the autopsy report, the examination was completed on the 22nd of July, but John didn't receive any information about his daughter's death until over a week later. On August 3rd, the phone finally rang. It was Ed Reedy, the medical examiner, who asked John what questions he had for him. Without hesitation, John demanded, did you check to see if my daughter had been raped? The other line was silent for a beat. Then Dr. Reedy replied, no, I didn't do a rape test. John replied, why not? You come to my house telling me that my daughter killed herself under distress and you didn't check to see if she had been raped? I would have thought that would have been your first consideration. Dr. Reedy simply said that there was no sign of a struggle. John told him that there was a bullet hole in the left side of Lavina's head, but she was right-handed, and he needed to know how that happened. The medical examiner told John that what he saw was the exit wound. According to Dr. Reedy, Lavina stuck an M16 rifle in her mouth and shot herself. John told the doctor that it was physically impossible, as his daughter was only five foot one and the weapon is 40 inches long, almost exactly two-thirds of her height. Dr. Reedy said that Lavina managed. Then John asked why there wasn't more damage. Dr. Reedy said that there was considerable damage, but as a veteran, John knew that if she had shot herself with an M16, it would have blasted a sizable hole out of the back of her head. The medical examiner confirmed that the bullet hole was located on the back of her head. John told Dr. Reedy that he had looked at Lavina's body himself and specifically noted that the bullet hole was on the left side of her head. But why was Dr. Reedy so adamant that Lavina did this to herself, despite the physical evidence pointing towards otherwise? What was there to hide? Around August 16th, John called the casualty liaison asking for concrete details, as he'd only been given hearsay. The liaison called back later that day to inform John that the evidence in the case was so messed up that it was going to take a year to straighten out. John informed the liaison that he was a 25-year veteran and an ex-GI. Over the phone, he said, I know you people very well, and you're arrogant. Once you make a call, you do not have the integrity to change it and do the right thing. Three days later, on the 19th, John received a copy of the autopsy report. Lavina's cause of death was listed as suicide. 
Although it's unclear if the other cause of death was listed before or after labeling it a suicide, there was a report written that stated that the death was a result of hostile action in combat. This isn't remotely possible because Lavina was working in a telecommunications room and not in combat. As John continued to read through the reports, he noticed that the army initially made Lavina appear to be deranged before finally settling on her being depressed. However, this is in direct contradiction to statements made by Lavina's company commander in an official report. It's written that, quote, this soldier was clearly happy and seemingly very healthy physically and emotionally. The report also claimed that Lavina had expressed that she hated her life and said she didn't want to live. This was all while she called home to talk to her parents and told them how excited she was to come home for Christmas. July 17th was a Sunday, and exactly two days before Lavina's death. The phone rang in the Johnson house around 7.30 in the morning. John was already awake, so he answered it. He talked for a few minutes before handing the phone to Linda. Linda asked Lavina if she wanted her to wake everyone up to say hi. Being the considerate person she was, Lavina told her mom, no, it's okay, it's early and she can call back later. Lavina was excited as she told her parents that she may be coming home sooner than Christmas. Linda recalled how happy she sounded, not an inkling of distress in her voice. Lavina told her that if she couldn't call the next day, that she would call as soon as she could. But Linda never got another phone call from her daughter. The army told John how they insisted the following night went. In their iteration of events, around 11.45 p.m., Lavina left the barracks to go to Section A of the housing area. There, she sat in a dark and dirty contractor's tent on a bench. Lavina took a can of some sort of accelerant and placed it underneath the bench she was sitting on in order to light herself on fire, then proceeded to take her M16, place it in her mouth, and pull the trigger with her right thumb. Another version of events given by the army is that Lavina was upset because her brand new boyfriend of two months had broken up with her via email. The military alleged that Lavina printed the emails out, stuffed them in her pocket, slung her M16 service weapon over her shoulder, and went to buy M&Ms and a six pack of soda at the military store with an unnamed male friend. The military claimed the two returned to the barracks, but then Lavina left again, alone this time. She made her way to a tent belonging to Kellogg, Brown, and Root, otherwise known as KBR, which is a military contractor. Once Lavina was in the KBR tent, the military says she found a can of aerosol and lit the breakup emails on fire, and then the entire tent. Then, the distraught and depressed Lavina placed the M16 in her mouth and fired. John wrote back to the military after receiving her psychological evaluation, asking that if Lavina was so depressed as they had claimed, why was she carrying around an M16 rifle? He also asked what implications the army had that alluded to her depression. Their response was that she had a change in eating habits. Specifically, she'd been consuming more ice cream than usual, up to three or four times a day. This was nonsense and John knew it. Why would Lavina be chastised for eating a lot of ice cream when the Middle Eastern heat was drastically hotter than the weather she experienced back in Missouri? Lavina even wrote in one of the letters to her parents how hot it was. If she had been drinking beers with the boys to cool herself down instead, would they still have labeled her as depressed? John received a copy of this report along with black and white copies of the crime scene photos. He calmly flipped through the pages, fully aware that he was about to see pictures of his daughter's dead body. He came upon a photo of Lavina lying on the floor with blood pooled beneath her head. But he noticed something peculiar. Lavina's right arm was draped across her face, as if she were defending herself. 
There was a cot between her and the gun she allegedly used to kill herself, and the shell casing was next to and almost underneath her right leg. In another photo, a pile of partially burned papers could be seen. The army alleged that the papers were the email of her breakup, but there are over a dozen burnt pages that looked as if they were stacked neatly in a pile before being burned, not indicative of a scorned lover having an emotional breakdown. John bravely scoured the photos for clues, but when he stumbled upon a photo that captured Lavina's face, he couldn't bear to look at her dead eyes. He shuffled the papers back into the envelope and locked himself in the bathroom to cry. This was a battle he would fight every day for years. Once the tears subsided, they were replaced with anger, and John went back to his mission to seek justice. As witness statements were released through the course of the investigation, it was soon revealed that John's suspicions were true. Lavina had been raped. This was substantiated by reports that she had been receiving medical treatment for condyloma. Condyloma acuminata is a manifestation of human papillomavirus, or HPV. The condition is characterized by skin-colored, fleshy papules in the anal and genital area, known as the anogenital region. HPV is a double-stranded DNA virus primarily spread through sexual contact. In layman's terms, Lavina had contracted genital warts from the assault. Lavina's parents never knew about the rape. By 2009, John had fought tooth and nail to get his grievances to members of Congress. In a correspondence titled, Casualty of a Cover-Up, Not Combat, he wrote that Lavina was stationed in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, when she was told her unit was already in Iraq and that she was not needed over there. She was later told that the major general in charge had ordered her to be sent there anyway. Though it's not strictly enforced, as John knew from his 25 years of service, it's standard procedure for soldiers to be assigned a battle buddy, as a way for them to keep up with one another for safety purposes. Lavina was in Iraq for 10 weeks trying to do her job while her life was in danger, and she was never assigned a battle buddy. A battle or combat buddy is someone who can account for you and your whereabouts at any given time, but Lavina didn't have one. When a crime is committed or an investigation is implemented, a base camp goes into lockdown status where movement is restricted, including destroying trash and taking baths until the necessary evidence is collected. There was no indication that this was done, even with the evidence pointing to assault and murder. Lavina's death was still ruled a suicide. As John stated, quote, This was not an accident. This was intentional, deliberate and the actions succeeding her death were designed to cover up a crime. He wrote that the investigation and conclusion reached by the military was that Lavina completed suicide and her injuries were self-inflicted, but John raised multiple questions. For example, why doesn't the bullet wound match the type of weapon issued to Lavina? Why were there bruises, abrasions, broken teeth, and visible trauma to the vaginal area evident on autopsy photos that was never addressed? Why were there no vaginal swabs done to test for DNA? Why did Lavina's parents receive her body with dress uniform gloves already glued to her hands? Why was the tent that she was found in set fire with her in it? Why were there blood drops found outside of the tent? Why was there a pool of smeared blood with large footprints in it found inside the tent and yards from the body? And most importantly, how does someone who killed themselves accomplish all of this? In John's correspondence, he also lists numerous disturbing and unexplained facts. For example, Lavina lived in the barracks with fellow soldiers, but officials kept referring to the empty, abandoned, isolated contractor's tent where her body was found as her tent. There was never an explanation given about the bruises, abrasions, and inconsistency of the bullet wound with the type of weapon issued to Lavina. 
Plus, the length of her arm versus the length of the weapon and the point and angle of the entry wound was physically impossible. The placement of her body when found wasn't consistent with the force of impact from the M16, indicating her body was moved prior to being discovered. Autopsy photos given to John indicate evidence had been tampered with. On the photos of Lavina's body, it showed her tennis shoes on the correct feet, then on the wrong feet, then on the correct feet again. Why? Military officials also terminated all inquiries of fellow soldiers in regard to Lavina's death. An army representative told the Johnson family that Lavina's death was under a criminal investigation. However, an army spokesperson stated that, quote, while a criminal investigation unit was performing the investigation, it did not mean that a crime was committed. What the spokesperson didn't clear up was why a criminal investigation unit was conducting an investigation to create a suicide scenario rather than pursuing and following up on the physical evidence they saw and photographed while walking in and out of where the body was discovered. On July 17, 2008, John traveled to Washington, D.C. to discuss Lavina's death with six officials from the Army. He showed them the rough sketch depicting the crime scene and asked about the multiple pools of blood located in and out of the tent, but they couldn't give an answer. They even denied that what was photographed was blood. When John asked why Lavina's weapon was located so far from her body, the explanation given was that a medic removed it to perform CPR before the CID was able to get a picture with her rifle on or near her body. However, when asked how a medic was able to perform CPR while Lavina's arm was over her face, the army officials didn't explain, and they also refused to comment on the two fires that were located inside the tent. When asked about the footprint, they had no explanation for it. John additionally noted that the bullet casing was almost underneath Lavina's right leg. If Lavina placed the gun in her mouth the way the army alleged, the bullet casing should have ended up on her left side or ejected from the right side of the gun. The relationship between spent shell casings and the location of the shooter isn't an exact science, but in an experiment where a semi-automatic rifle was shot 90 times at the same target, it proved that the shell casings would land on the right of where the gun is pointed. So how did this bullet make a 180? John had viewed Lavina's body in person and reviewed the photos from the autopsy. He noticed that the bullet wound in his daughter's head looked too small to be from an M16 and that it was on the left side. Again, Lavina was right-handed. The military's response said it was an exit wound from the M16. Yet, two separate ballistics experts, Donald Marion and Cyril Wecht, state that Lavina's alleged M16 exit wound is actually more consistent with a bullet wound from a 9mm pistol. The bullet that killed Lavina was never found, and the military's own residue tests indicate that she may not have even handled the weapon that supposedly killed her. Plus, her gloves were already glued to her hands by the time the Johnsons received her body. The autopsy photos also showed that Lavina had bruises and scratches on the upper part of her torso. There were even teeth marks. She appeared to have been badly beaten, and her left eye bulged out of its socket. Something like lye or another caustic substance had been poured on her vaginal area, most likely to eliminate any DNA evidence from rape. There was a trail of blood leading outside of the tent, suggesting that Lavina had been dragged into the tent after the attack, and then the tent was set on fire. The second autopsy found that Lavina's neck was broken. Parts of her vagina, tongue, and anus had been removed. The military's autopsy notes none of this, nor were the Johnsons informed that parts of their daughter's body had been removed. Unfortunately, Lavina's story is all too familiar. 
As of 2010, of the approximately 120 female service members who died in Iraq, over 50% of them died in non-combat-related circumstances. More than 25 of those deaths were under suspicious circumstances. In eight of those suspicious deaths, the military ruled the cause of death as suicide. It should be noted that these alleged suicides occurred in Iraq, not the United States, which is statistically unusual for veterans. Tragically, the military has a history of assuming families will remain compliant with both when and what information is given to loved ones. This both severely affects the family's grief as well as causes emotional damage and distrust all on its own. If Lavina's family was going to fight, it would consume their whole life, but for their daughter, it was more than worth it. According to retired Colonel Anne Wright, many of the women who had been raped during this time in the 2000s were at Camp Taji and Balad Air Base in Iraq, serving in Operation Iraqi Freedom. Many of those who were stationed there came from Fort Hood, which has notoriously high numbers of rapes and domestic violence incidences. 14,900 members, 8,600 women, and 6,300 men were sexually assaulted in 2016. Most victims were sexually assaulted more than once, resulting in over 41,000 assaults in 2016 alone. Over one in four women and one in three men were assaulted by someone in their chain of command, which is often referred to as command rape. 81% of victims did not report the crime in 2016. 58% of women and 60% of men who reported a sexual assault faced retaliation. 77% of retaliation reports alleged that retaliators were in the reporter's chain of command. Lavina Lynn Johnson was the first female soldier from Missouri to die in Iraq, but she's neither the first nor the only soldier to have died under suspicious, non-combat circumstances. She was an ambitious and loving young woman who was dearly missed by her mother, father, sister, and three brothers. Lavina was interred at the Jefferson Barracks National Cemetery in LeMay, Missouri. As of 2022, her death is still listed as suicide. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for next week's Story from the Mortuary.